Good morning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, your brothers and sisters over the hill in Newburgh at uh, Shehalem Valley Presbyterian. Uh, truly a sister congregation and a sister church, having uh, both been graciously planted out of uh, Evergreen Beaverton, uh, our mother church, yours and ours. It is a pleasure to be able to uh, come this morning and, and to preach. And what I wanted to do this morning is Eric and I talked about uh, splitting up responsibilities and, and taking each other's pulpits over this uh, week. I wanted to share a little bit about what we're doing at Shehalem Valley, what it is that we believe God is leading us to do and how that is based uh, as the work of here at Ascension in Scripture. Uh, we have a cute little phrase at CVP that we try and use to refrain, uh, to give structure to what we do, we, uh, which actually turns out, I didn't know this when I did it, when we worked through it with a group, we actually ripped it off of the Methodists, but it's a good idea. We, uh, we say that we, we try and apply the gospel, try to apply the fullness of, of scripture with three basic phrases that uh, we desire to see uh, God open our hearts, open our hands, and open our doors. And we take that, little uh, three phrases, out of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I know they're printed there in your worship folder. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear now God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and, every, and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to one another as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. I apologize. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we are dependent upon your word. We are dependent upon your wisdom to remake us, to renew us in your image. We ask this morning that even in this familiar text, you might encourage our hearts, that you might give us again a, a vision of the power of the resurrection, the power of the kingdom, the power of the Holy Spirit poured out generously on all your people. And Lord, whatever is said this morning that is not useful for the building up of your people, we pray those words would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name. Amen. We certainly live in a time where we can talk about declines. Uh, we can talk about the declines in certain areas of morality. We can talk about changes in culture. Uh, we can talk about the ups and downs economically that we face right now. By the grace of God, things seem to be heading in a fairly good way economically, at least for many. We can talk about wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters which continue to plague humanity and we can ask ourselves the same question that the church always asks herself. What is the church to do? How do we interact in the midst of these ups and downs? 
I would suggest to you this morning that the early church faced a culture and a time not too different, and in fact, in many ways, very, very analogous to our own time. The Roman Empire had its up days and its down days. They existed in a culture which was not always supportive of their particular ethic and ideas. We know that the church was very soon to face persecution and to face uh, great pressure from the culture in which it lived. My suggestion is that as the church looks at any culture, her calling in basic structure is always the same. As individuals and corporately, that the basic, basic rhythms of the kingdom of God, the basic ethics that drive God's people forward are always the same. Some of the cultural applications may look different. The technology may change. All of those things certainly are variable, culture to culture. But if the kingdom of God really transcends every time, every culture, every nation, then there are basic structures to the way the church interacts, which we can glean even from 2,000 years ago. So basically, I want us to look uh, at the first couple of verses under the context of open hearts, uh, 44 and following through open hands, and then finally 46 through 47 as open doors. Let's look first at open hands, I mean, sorry, open hearts. Uh, in the Jewish worldview, and I'm sure Eric's told you this more than once, in the Jewish, Jewish worldview, the center of the being is not the mind. The Enlightenment gave us the idea that if we could just have right thinking, we would have right actions. That hasn't worked out terribly well, and yet we are still kind of coming out of this notion of an Enlightenment thought process, which focuses almost exclusively on the mind and knowledge. And in the Reformed faith, some of our greatest advantages is our respect for what the Word teaches and the way in which it is structured in a way which is logical and attainable. The mind is certainly engaged. The Bible will even talk about the renewing of the mind. But the root of a human being's existence in the Bible is not seen as the mind. It is the heart. Now, not in perhaps a sentimental way in the hallmark sense of heart that we often have in our culture, but it is the center of a person's being in the Old Testament. God does not say in Ezekiel, I will take your mind of stone out and give you a mind of flesh. He says, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The heart for the Jewish worldview is the center of one's being. And so for us to understand what is going on here in verse 42, we need to understand that this is a heart issue, a heart transformation, so that when we see that they are devoted to the teaching, that is an activity of the being saying, I am committed to this group of people, committed to what the Holy Spirit is doing in this community of faith. They were devoted to one another. And in that devotion, it starts with, of course, the richness of God's word. What is it that God is telling us through his word, not through our own understanding, but as he reveals himself? And you have all of these wonderful ways in which God, by the Holy Spirit, has had the road to Emmaus experience. The apostles are telling, here's how all the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. What do you think the apostles were teaching here in Acts? They were pointing to the richness of everything that was said to come when the kingdom of God came. And they're pointing out how Jesus in his life and in his ministry embodied and made all of the great hopes of the Old Testament 
true. Jesus was the greater Joshua, the greater David. He was the one who was the greater Israelite. He had perfected the law. He had defeated the judgment of the law. He'd given life and the apostles, and they just reflected on the richness of God's word and its fulfillment in Christ. They were devoted to it. They marinated in it. It was wonderful. The fellowship. It's corporate worship. Later down in the following verses, it talks about the fellowship that they have throughout the rest of the week in the way in which they shared their lives together. But here, in verse 42, we are talking about what it means to come into the presence of God as God's people. What we just did and what we will do in the communion that comes afterwards, there are times that I stop singing and listen to you. I need to hear you say true things about God because on any given week, I don't believe it. What I've gone through, I may doubt. I may just need a deep drink of water and to hear my brothers and sisters say true things to me through the singing of God's word, through the prayers and through the reading of scripture is a deep draft of a cool, clear water for me. You should come into worship expecting that the fellowship you feel by the Holy Spirit is meant for your good. That as wonderful as our private times of worship and devotion are, there is something different in the way that the Holy Spirit unites a worshiping body together that they might encourage and feed one another. In verse 42, the fellowship is not just the general richness of fellowship. It is that purposeful fellowship meant for the building up of God's people. The breaking of bread, that's sacrament. So we have the preaching of the word, we have the marinating in the truths of God, we have fellowship so that I can hear that from you and not just through my own lens. And then there is the dependency upon God that is fundamental in the sacraments. Baptism in the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread here is clear. The definite article is used here, it's not used later on in verse 46. It's the bread. It's communion. It is that remembering week after week, this is my body given for you, that you might have life. It was sacramental. And then the prayers. Now again, the scholars will argue about what that means, but at the very least it means they enjoyed the Psalms. All of what we do in worship is a prayer, right? If prayer is fundamentally a conversation with God, a conversation with the divine, it makes sense that the prayers here would be that conscious reflection upon the Psalter, upon the prayers that we find in Scripture. The great prayers of Isaiah, the great prayers of Elisha, the prayers that we find of David and the sons of Korah, all of the ways in which we see prayers and praises throughout Scripture. They incorporated all of that into their corporate worship. And their hearts were transformed. See, what we do in worship corporately as we come together is to lay our hearts before the Lord. It is not a place where you get more information. If you come here for a lecture, you're going to miss the richness of what it could really be. The richness is laying our hearts open to the word and the presence of the Holy Spirit with God's people gathered together in order that we might be transformed, remade and renewed, revived and strengthened. Our wounds bound up, 
our hearts set free for what God can and will do. Whatever you need God to do to you and in you this morning, bring your heart before the Lord. He will do it. Maybe a long process. I wish it was magical. It's not. But it starts with an openness of our hearts, not just our minds, to what God can and will do. Verse 43 then takes us into there was a sense of awe and wonder. There were wonders and signs being done. All of God's people were being amazed. Trust me. If this is an intellectual exercise, if you were checking a box off that you did church on Sunday, there will be no awe in what God does here. There can't be. Your hearts aren't open. My heart wouldn't be open if I'm just here to get my paycheck and I only work one day a week, right? So if I only work one day a week and I come here to earn my paycheck, will I sense awe? Will I recognize the fact that I'm ushered into the presence of the Almighty God every Sunday with God's people? That absolutely I have access to Him throughout the week, but there's something special when two or more are gathered. Awe comes from our hearts, falling in love in ever greater degrees with the Creator of the universe who reached down and wants to have a personal and intimate relationship with me and with His church. What holds us back? Augustine said it's because we have disordered loves. Our hearts follow other loves. We get things out of order. Of course, we're fond of God. Gets us out of hell. That is handy. But if he is merely one who has paid some judicial price, we don't usually fall in love with our lawyers. You know what the normal temptations are. We love money and the security that it gives us. And so in the ups and downs of the week, it may be difficult for us to appreciate the richness of God because our portfolios or our job has changed. And so we're uncertain and secure, and therefore we're not sure that God loves us because the cash flow has changed. Times when those difficulties hit us, you know where your heart finds its greatest solace in how we respond. Love of status. Have we lost prestige this week? Has it driven us to a sense of despair? The love of being loved, the inability to confront children or family members or loved ones or friends because even though we know they're driving off a cliff. If we were to point out the fact that they were driving off a cliff, they might get mad at us. And we'd rather be loved than love. Love of children, love of family, those things can become twisted, disordered. All of these things are good. God uses money. God uses people in position. God uses the reality of being community. Why do we want to be loved? Well, because God creates us in community. Let us make them in our image. Trinitarian development into the creation of humanity. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have fellowship. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be liked. 
But when our hearts find their greatest fulfillment and comfort, when they look for solace, and the only reason we love God is because God gets us those things that our heart might be secure, then we are in a very natural state for human beings. But nonetheless, it's why there's a lack of awe. It's why there's a lack of richness in our worship. It's because we live, perhaps, not acknowledging that we continue to need a heart transplant. We continue to need to have our hearts transformed, not theoretically, not simply theologically, but richly because we have a loving God who often describes himself as a husband pursuing his bride. That's not a legal term. That is a relational engagement with his people. Some of the most powerful language in Scripture is that of God's heart for his people. And again, that's not sentimentality. That is a fierce love. A love willing to defend his bride, but also confront her. A groom who demands nothing but first place in her heart. In this early chapter uh, in this, of the church in Acts, we see that the heart is being transformed, that God's people are falling more and more in love because of what Jesus has done, and they're excited about it. There is a logical thing that happens then. When one comes in contact with God and begins to fall in love with God as a person, as an entity, as a Savior, as a groom, and not simply a technical understanding of the divine, our hands open up. So when your heart becomes open to God, what is one of the things that when you are trying to protect your own heart and your own loves, the last thing you can do is open your hands? You're either fighting somebody, you're defending yourself, or you can't let go of the money that's clenched within your fist. But what we see in the early church is that as they engage, verse 44, they become fundamentally generous. This is before Marx, this is before Engels, this is before socialism. Whatever this is, we've got to make sure that the battles of economic systems that we have endured over the last 80 to 100 years do not pervert our ability to read this passage and dismiss it as somehow something to do with what weird things human beings have tried to do, riffing off of the truths of God. If we put it into the categories of socialism versus capitalism, we will find ourselves defensive in reading a text like they were just generous with one another. Radically and sometimes from a middle-class suburban understanding, irresponsibly generous with one another. Right? But it makes sense that they'd be generous if they were falling in love with God and getting to know him better and marinating in the truths of who he is because God is fundamentally, in his essence, generous. Genesis 1 and 2. Everything starts in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis 1 and 2. What do we learn about God? Yes, he's all-powerful. Yes, he creates everything out of nothing. And when he creates everything out of nothing, he gives it away to the ones he created. Here, y'all play with it. Have fun with this. I made this, and in fact, I enjoy being generous. I want you to enjoy what I just made. I created you in my image. I love you. Have fun with this. Enjoy it. You were created to be like me. 
God is fundamentally generous. And then after the fall, we find out that God is generous in forgiveness, generous in patience, generous with His own Son. You cannot engage a heart transformation getting to know the Redeemer of the universe without your hands beginning to open up because you're no longer afraid. No longer afraid that if you open it up, stuff will be taken out and you'll die alone and penniless and forgotten. You have too generous a God to fear that. The more you know him, the more you will trust that. John Dickerson, in a book called The Great Evangelical Recession, which is fundamentally depressing in many regards, and yet also hopeful, gives us a glimpse into the fact that we may need to wrestle with as a church this idea of generosity. Dickerson uh, quotes statistics from the the early 2000s when the numbers were were, uh, solid and well um, vetted. In 2001, average giving to the church and to parachurch organizations by those who consider themselves evangelicals was 4.27% of the income. 1985, that was 4.75. So a little decrease, but not terrible, right? 1965, it was 6.15%. However, when you adjust to inflation in 2001, that means that the average giving was right at or just below 3% of people's uh, income. 2003, there was a 62% drop from 2002 in giving to the work uh, of the church and the parachurch organizations. 2004 saw the lowest rate of giving since the Great Depression. That's before the crash, right? Those were the high days when everybody was, well, slightly overextended. But we thought we were rich. And then you have this interesting transition 65 and over folks are 19% of attendance and 46% of a giving. Now, we can do anything we want with those statistics. Beat ourselves up, have fun with it, point out who needs to give more. All I want to do this morning is suggest that perhaps because of our orthodoxy wars, perhaps because of our attempts to focus on evangelism and getting people in the lifeboat, perhaps it's all kinds of things that we have faced as a church in the last hundred years, that whatever we have tried to maintain, whatever we have tried to protect, has not helped us fall more in love with Jesus. Because our hands are not more open. They're getting tighter. We're becoming more fearful. The early church faced a Roman Empire that would light them up like tiki torches in 20 years as Nero wanted to light up his garden. They were not at peace. They were not secure. There would be famines. There would be wars. And yet something about falling in love with Jesus left them able to increasingly have their hands open and generous to one another and the world around them. Jesus says, love God, love neighbor. When you fall in love with God, you will fall in love with your neighbor. 
your hands will become open. We hold on to that at CVP. It cuts both ways. It is not an easy thing for us to process. There are ways in which we want to know how to be generous wisely. Just throwing around cash can be a bigger harm than it is good. Great books like When Helping Hurts, and uh, I think some of you are now doing Generous Justice. There is a great need to learn how to do this well, and I'm not suggesting that you're not generous. I do want to encourage you that from God's Word, when we see people marinating in worship and enriching themselves at the feet of a risen Savior, they find themselves less fearful and more generous. Not because they're earning more points. It's just a natural outworking. And it becomes a somewhat of a diagnostic question. If I find my hands have a difficult time opening, Lord, what do I need to know about you? It may not be that I have a lot of resources financially to give, but my time, my talents, my efforts, my prayers, my concern, generous in forgiveness, generous in reconciliation, humble in my relationships with others. Do I keep everything about me locked up and tight and closed-fisted? Or is the confidence that the risen Savior and the creator of the universe is for me, therefore who can be against me? I don't need to protect myself. That's his job. And he's better at it than I am. He's bigger than I am. Open hands. Which leads to open doors, 46 and 47. They lived openly, modeling the ethics and the characteristics in the style of the kingdom of God. They riffed off of Jesus' life. They lived openly and in front of people. Gathering daily at the temple doesn't necessarily mean that they were holding a worship service every day. It was the center of Jewish life. There were all kinds of things that went in and on and around the temple. If you wanted to find a Christian in Jerusalem and you just come to town, the best thing to do was go to the temple because chances are you could run into a few. They may have been praying for one another. They were certainly sharing life in the kingdom of God together out in public. Again, let's not assume that that was a safe idea. Jesus had been nailed to a cross by the people who ran the temple. Paul was still on the loose. His name was Saul at that point. It's not like it was a warm fuzzy and all the Jewish people, oh, it's great, the Christians are here to worship at the temple. No, no. They weren't under open persecution, but they weren't hiding either. Isn't the amazing thing after Pentecost, you got 120 people up in an upper room, and they're all somewhat unnerved? The Holy Spirit comes, and they're out in public. The doors open up. They're no longer in locked rooms. They're out in and through the society and the culture in which God has placed them. Their doors are open. People can watch what the Christians are doing. People can walk through those open doors. They can see the generosity. I heard that Frank's crop was destroyed by locusts. Frank's not starving to death. No, the Christian sold something. He's one of those Christian people. His family is getting taken care of this winter. Really? Yeah. Huh. They modeled an ethic and a lifestyle that eventually in the course of 300 years would transform Western understanding of what humility is, what service, generosity, 
real strength. The Romans and the Greeks did not honor the ethics and the values that Christians held dear. It was strength. It was duty without love. It was take what you can get and every person for themselves. It was sola bootstrapsa. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That was the values and the ethics of the Roman culture. And don't tell me about my religion. Everybody needs their own lucky charm. You have yours, I'll have mine. It was as pluralistic as our society. And Christianity openly models monotheism around one God who is generous and gracious and loving and all-powerful, and they did that out in public, and people were drawn to it. Because it was better than anything anybody could imagine. People were treated with respect. There was forgiveness. They worked through their problems. They had pastors writing endless letters going, it's all right, Jesus is coming back. In the meantime, forgive one another. The great Pauline corpus would develop out of the encouragement of God's people to live openly in the ethic and quality of Christ himself. It took 325 years, but it took over the entire Roman Empire without voting somebody into office, without holding a march, without having a banner. Just living with their doors open. Quietly, yet publicly. There was generosity, and that transformed people's thoughts of what the world could be like. I'm sure you're familiar with Justin Apostate. Justin the Apostate's quote, 4th century Caesar after Constantine. He's trying to reinstate paganism. He's not having much success. He writes in frustration to one of his local governors. So the problem with the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, is that not only do they take care of their own, but they take care of ours as well. The notion of killing the Christians on a local level was absurd because who on earth would take care of us if the Christians left? We know them. We see them. The question we ask in Newburgh is if CVP disappeared, would anybody care but the people who go to CVP? Would the community feel like it lost something, something that was for it, something that worked for the good of the city? Would anyone care? The impact of the early church and the lifestyle we see embodied here in Acts chapter 2 brought it to a certain point where it became, in the 4th century, unthinkable for local people to imagine a world without Christians. That would be a bad thing. It's possible again. There's an organic flow. This is not a program. It's not a project. It's not as if we can somehow create five steps. It is simply... Three rich truths that God loves us. And the more we plumb the depths of the love of God, the more God's character 
will permeate what we do. And the more God's character permeates what we do, the more the world will be amazed. As it has been before, it will be again. It will stand in awe of the peace, the confidence, the strength, the love, the forgiveness, the richness that you have experienced. Simply let the world see what God has done and let God do the rest. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and patient. We ask that you would be merciful even now. Lord, we ask that you would continue to enrich our hearts. Continue to give us eyes to see how you have worked in our lives and how you're working in others, that we might be encouraged, that we might be revived ourselves. Pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.